Anyone claiming that America's economy is in decline is peddling fiction. I've abandoned free market principles to save the free market system. But we have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. Raising the debt ceiling does not increase our debt. It does not somehow promote profligacy. I know words. I have the best words. Nobody knows the system better than me, which is why I alone can fix it. Hello, hello. What is up? What is up, everybody? Welcome back to a brand new episode of Peddling Fiction. I, of course, am your host, the voice and soul of so-called fiction, Johnny Probita, broadcasting once again from an undisclosed location deep behind enemy lines. And let's just say I'm in a far better setup than what I have in Chicago, Illinois for the foreseeable future, hopefully. So if the audio is a little different or not up to par, I apologize for that. I don't have my usual setup, but I will still be podcasting. I just don't have all of my equipment here. So I'm using the USB microphone. Hopefully this will turn out okay. Um, But I I hopped on a plane the other day, take a little little break from Chicago and get out to a, a sunnier location. You know, I got to say, I was on a plane back in June, as most of you know, I went to Florida, and the the airport and the planes I flew on, both from Chicago and uh, into Florida, and out of Florida into into Chicago, everything was packed. It looked like a normal day at the airport pre-COVID-19, and the airline, uh, I flew American that time, and the, the airplanes were packed. This time around, granted, it was a much earlier flight. I had a uh, 6.15 a.m. flight out of Chicago. But, man, the airport was dead. The plane was, like, 25% full, maybe 30%. And it was a huge – they're flying these huge, like, jumbo jets now, you know, the 737, whatever. So I, I, I have no idea. know nothing about planes, really. But it was the big one that has the four seats in the middle and almost nobody on there. I had a connection in Houston – and that plane as well, same type of plane, also like barely half full. So I, I don't know if this is, has a lot to do with the second wave kind of thing going on, or, but it's not a good sign for the airlines. I, I flew United this time, and United, they, they haven't changed any of their procedures the way American Airlines did. American Airlines had like a whole they gave you like a little uh bag with all of your stuff right when you walked in uh, onto the plane and so there was no like service during the flight they didn't come around with a a cart or of drinks or food or anything like that you just you got your bag and that was it united kept their same service but they're they're so overstaffed it's absolutely ridiculous. you could tell that they've gotten this uh, th- these bailouts and all this PPP money that they talk about because they had s- like six stewardesses, stewardesses? They had six flight attendants, <laughs> okay? 
not even supposed to say stewardess anymore. I guess that's offensive to some people. Um, but there, there were a couple of men in there too. I don't know. Yeah, I guess you just call them uh, male flight attendants. But th- it was ridiculous. Like you didn't need any. You could just do the the bag thing that American Airlines does. Hand us a bag. You don't need any of these flight attendants if you're not going to be serving anything. But they did the normal drink service. Not. Um, I don't know if you could buy alcohol. I, I didn't try because it, it was like really early in the morning and I was tired. I was trying to sleep. But they came around, you know, right after you start to doze off on the flight. They wake you up and they ask you if you want anything to drink. You know, they give you a bottle of water. Oh, no, they gave you a bag. They gave you a prepared bag. So instead of just handing it to you right when you walk onto the plane, they wait till everybody gets on. Then they use six different flight attendants to pass out the bags, which is absolutely ridiculous i i don't know what they're thinking like this is the problem that we talked about with the the paycheck protection plan and all this bailout money we don't need to have six flight attendants on a united airlines flight that's half full these airlines are hemorrhaging money they have to be i don't think their earnings have come out yet but the plane was half full and then they're they're using six times more staff than they need to hand out a, a prepackaged thing with a bottle of water and some pretzels and a, actually a waffle for anybody that's ever had one of those. They're delicious little uh, cookie dessert thing. Uh, that was a nice touch. I appreciated that. But they, they just looked like they were so overstaffed and the plane was like practically empty. Um, it just does not look like a good sign for this uh, supposed V-shaped recovery that everybody talks about. And uh, these airlines, they look like they're going to be struggling for quite some time now. I had, I initially thought that was going to be the case, and then when I actually flew, I was like, oh, well, this kind of looks like normal. Maybe maybe this won't be as bad as, as people thought. And then a- after this flight, after seeing those airports, seeing the planes as empty as they were, I, I do not have high hopes for their uh, the, the next several months on the on these planes and the flights. The flights I've been looking at were like relatively expensive for uh, what they were doing. But anyway, um, that's what I've been up to. I I decided to take a short little vacation here. It's going to be, you know, just a, like a Wednesday to to Monday sort of thing. I, I'm still going to be in this location for about a month, so I won't have my regular setup for probably until the, you know mid-August or so. But I will resume my my normal schedule, my my normal work schedule Monday through Friday with the podcasts on on Tuesdays and Fridays. I, I've basically been unplugged for the last couple of days, so I don't have a, a whole lot to. Um, to talk about here i mean i've been i've been on twitter a little bit so i've been sort of seeing what's been going on but i'm still getting settled in over here i don't want to rush through an episode and and put out something that uh isn't going to give people a lot of value so i was actually planning to do an interview for today's episode and i don't really understand why this fell through but somebody was was talking to me on twitter and they they had a, uh, a a big announcement they wanted to make, something uh, libertarian-esque. And so he, he was going to come on the podcast, and 
uh, we were going to we were going to talk about it. I don't know. I was going to do like a little interview thing, change it up a little bit. And I was going to pre-record that before I left for this trip on Tuesday. And he sort of I don't I don't know. He was he was being really weird about it. And it, it sort of fell through. Uh, he, he didn't want to do it because he thought I was going to be rushed, rushed because I was leaving town the next day or something like that. So um, unfortunately, that would have really made my life a lot easier to have a, a pre-recorded episode for this Friday. But um, I don't have that, and I don't know if that's going to happen now because I, I, I don't know. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't care for the uh, assumption that for some reason I wasn't going to do a good job or something with the interview because I don't know. I, I was leaving town the next day or something like that. It, it just. It kind of bothered me, and it came across as like kind of a douchey thing to do. So, I don't know. We're we're still in. Uh, I don't know. Maybe he's even going to listen to this if he listens to the podcast. But uh, he's talking about doing it when I get back, which is going to be like a month from now. So if it's that big of an announcement, I don't understand how you can just wait a month to do it. But we'll see. Um, so what I decide to do for today is I'm going to play an older episode that I don't think very many people have listened to. So for a handful of you, you might have gone back and it looks like some people have listened to it. Um, I, I do apologize for that, but it, it's a I think it's a pretty good episode. And I think you, you guys will get a lot of value of it for those of you who haven't. Um, made the deep dive back into the older archives. I, I just realized that I went over a hundred episodes, like a, uh, five or six episodes ago, or something like that. Um, I probably should have been paying a little more attention to that. I could have done like a hundred episode uh, extravaganza or something like that. But anyway, this is an episode from about a year ago. Uh, I hope you guys enjoy it, and I will be back on Tuesday to do an actual new real episode for you guys and uh hope you all have a nice weekend you have fun stay safe and until next time just keep on peddling that so-called fiction peace what's up everybody welcome back this is the peddling fiction podcast and i am your host the voice and soul of so-called fiction, Johnny Profita. Hope everyone is doing well today. Thank you all so very much for tuning in once again to your favorite Blowhardy and Caps podcast. For those of you not familiar with the show, I talk about politics and current events, some economics, and I am always coming at things from a libertarian point of view. You could call me an anarcho-capitalist if you want. And I guess maybe I should define what I mean by that because I, I don't know if I've ever really gone into a lot of detail of it on the show and I just kind of assume, which I shouldn't do, that people know what I mean when I say ANCAP or anarcho-capitalist or when I refer to myself as an anarchist. Because, you know, if you look up the definition of anarchy in the dictionary or whatever, or you hear it used in you know, just common everyday language, people usually refer to, you know, uh, chaos, lawlessness, you know, violence in the streets, things like that. Uh, I do not advocate for law a lawless society um, with, with gangs roaming the streets and, and, and looting and, 
and hurting people or anything like that, okay? Anarchy, what, what the actual word means is without rulers, okay? So it, it's not that I don't believe there should be rules. It's that I don't think we should have people ruling over other people, okay? Um, and and the, the capitalism part, refers to you know you know a, a system of property rights like i i believe people should be able to own own property just not people right okay so if we as libertarians or in anarcho-capitalist libertarians we all agree and we all believe that we own ourselves like we own our body and we do not we do not support aggressing against peaceful people you you might hear this term uh, non-aggression principle. Okay, that that's what th- that's what that means. You, you do not aggress against people who are not, who aren't aggressing against anyone else. So if if we own our bodies and we own ourselves and we don't hurt people and we don't take their stuff, and if you believe that it's immoral to rule over other people, and you take that to its logical conclusion, the, the logical conclusion to that, um, at least for me is that we, we shouldn't have a government because what is a government if not a, a body that has a, a monopoly on the use of force that, that, that takes people's stuff, that hurts people and takes their stuff. Now, they can claim that they have a really good reason for taking your stuff. You know, they've got this great government charity that they're going to take your money and, and do all these wonderful things with. Uh, to me, that doesn't change the dynamic of this at all. I, if I have a great charity that I, I'm gonna I'm gonna you know uh, solve the the climate crisis, I just can't go door to door and just point a gun at you and say, "Hey, give me give me twenty percent of your income. It's for a good cause." And no, no, that that's still theft. That's still the use of force. If you don't give it to me, I'm gonna kidnap you and throw you in a cage. I I don't I don't see how that's morally acceptable on any level. Somehow. Somehow the government has convinced you because, you know, I realize that when I say things like we don't hurt people and we don't take their stuff, just about 99% of people will agree with me on that, right? It's a pretty simple principle. We don't hurt people and we don't take from them. We don't take from them what is not ours. But for some reason, for some reason, the, the government has been able to convince the vast majority of people who would agree with that statement. We don't hurt people and we don't take their stuff. That in certain instances, it's okay to do so. Like if we hire a third party to go, if, if we elect a government agent, then they can go and they can take other people's stuff on our behalf if it's for a really good cause. And then all of a sudden it's okay. That makes us feel better about ourselves. Uh, that's the most disturbing thing is that people get a sense of pride for advocating for taxation and and you get these politicians up on stage talking about how they're going to you know I'm going to fund this program or that program wait wait a minute you're going to fund it <laughs> like you're going to reach into your pocket and stroke a check for this for this program or or by funding do you mean you're just going to steal from people you're, uh, how noble of you! They're they're so proud of themselves. For f- my my administration funded this, or my plan pays for that. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. That's not what you do. Uh, you're you're stealing from people. You're stealing from people to pay for other things. So let's stop pretending that this is that this is some noble thing that you're doing. 
But see, the point is, when it comes to certain things, now, now that statement that everybody agreed with two seconds ago, that we don't hurt people and we don't take their stuff, now there's all these exceptions to this. Uh, there are certain situations where it's appropriate for, for national defense, for to build the roads, to provide education for people, to provide health care for people. Uh, uh, now it's okay to steal, uh, according to the vast majority of people in society. Anarcho-capitalists don't, don't subscribe to that. We don't believe that there are any exceptions to that rule. Uh, we, we don't hurt people and we don't take their stuff. That's it. And you draw conclusions from that. And you apply those principles to everyday situations. And that's when you start to lose a lot of people. <laughs> um, when there are no exceptions. Where I, when I, I will say it's okay that you have the right to discriminate. I, the vast majority of people are going to disagree with me on that. The vast majority of people will disagree that taxation is theft. They'll carve out all these exceptions for, for horribly immoral things if, if you and I do them. But if the government does them, then it, because they're wearing a special uniform, all of a sudden it's okay. All of a sudden the, the moral standards don't apply. Anarcho-capitalists, specifically libertarians in general, we do not ascribe these, um, all of these exceptions to these rules to, to government agents. See, they're on the same moral playing field as the rest of us. And I realize that these, these principles, when you apply them consistently— they take you into some very uncomfortable areas. And that's what, where, where tolerance really plays a role, a true tolerance, not, not this tolerance that the left preaches, where, where tolerance is if you don't see it their way, uh, you, you need to be punished. So when you really start to think about what these principles really mean when you apply them to everyday life and how much, um, what, what, what kind of tolerance that actually takes— then you start to lose a lot of people on, on the train to freedom, on the train to anarcho-capitalism. People want to get off at all sorts of different stops. Uh, what I want to do is I want to pull people, uh, I want to keep people on that train for as long as possible. Like, you don't have to go all the way down to, to Ancapistan with me. Uh, you, you can get off somewhere along, along the way, but the, the closer to Ancapistan we get, the better off we're going to be. And if you if you look at the political landscape today, you know some as you start to move uh, further left, I I I would put ANCAPs all the way on the right, as far right as you can get, farther right than the alt right, <laughs> if if you want to put it that way, because I don't want any government, I don't want any rulers. And as you start to move left, they they sort of see rulers as a necessary evil. We need a a little. Uh, we need some rulers to tell us what to do in certain situations and ensure that the rest of our freedoms aren't infringed upon. But as you move left, you know people think there's a, a larger and larger role for government in people's lives. Conservatives think that we should have this minimalist government, and that's what the Constitution was designed to do: was sort of limit the what the government can rule over you in in certain situations and where they can't. And then as you go really far left, like um, if you listen to the Democratic debates last week, they think that government should basically be involved in every aspect of your life, um, except abortion. You should be able to kill babies. That's the only, the only aspect of life where they don't want a government involvement is when it comes to killing babies. Apparently that's when they start, that's the only time you will hear libertarian arguments coming from 
uh, Democrats, people on the left, where it's my body, my choice, uh, get the government out of my health care. Uh, it's only when it's only when it's abortion. Uh, anything else, they, they want the government so far up your ass, it's unbelievable. But they think they should be in charge. Like, everything has a government solution. Um, government should be providing you all of these things. And they call them rights now. Like, ed- government should provide education. Government should provide health care, uh, provide housing, you know, transportation, e- everything. There's always a role for government there, which, of course, is the overarching theme to these Democratic debates, if you want to call them that, which we had another round last week, and that's what I want to talk about today, is, is they see a, a role for government in everything. Every, every problem has a government solution. Um, the government should be providing you with just about everything. And if, if I could just, <laughs> let me just give you a, a few more thoughts, because I know I've talked about these debates many times before this is like the third or fourth iteration of these things but it is a perfect example of the opposite of my philosophy where i would like to see a free market voluntary solution to every single problem in society i think that would produce better outcomes and more moral outcomes here you have i think we had 12 people up on stage whose answer to everything, every problem in society, the first place they look to is government. Well, government should do something. We need to pass a law. There should be a law. Uh, there, We need a program. We need a committee. We need a, a government commission to look into this. Government, government, government. Every problem has a government solution. But it's just such a bad system. It's such a bad way of... I guess, deciding who's going to rule over us because that's really what's happening here, right? This is their official interview. This is part of their interview process for commander-in-chief, right? And, and, and basically what it is is you, you have 12 people up on stage who get asked, you know, they're not complicated questions, but they're solutions to things, and these are big problems, big like massive problems in society, and their solutions to them will undoubtedly be thousand, fifteen hundred page, um, fifteen hundred page pieces of legislation that are so complex, and there are so many, so many intricate details, and and they they give these guys thirty seconds to answer a question. 30 seconds to, to, to say how you're going to solve healthcare in, a, in America, how you, how, you, how you are going to run healthcare in America, because that's, that's what every single Democratic candidate is proposing. Basically, Medicare for all, or Medicare for all who want it if you're Pete Buttigieg. And, you know, it's just, it's such a bad way of doing things. And it's the, it's a great example. It's the perfect example of how government never innovates. They never improve. They never fix anything. Okay, These debates that we're having, the format of these debates, are exactly the same as they were 40 years ago, 50 years ago, 60 years ago. As soon as the, you know, they were able to televise debates, nothing has changed since then. They get up on stage, they stand behind a podium, and, and somebody asks them a question, they they basically you know answer their own question in their head. They give you some talking points. 
they'll filibuster for, you know, 30 seconds or so if they don't have a direct answer to the question, and then they'll move on to the next question or the next candidate. And they just go on and on and on like this year after year. Nothing ever changes. Nothing ever, nothing ever improves. You would think that maybe with the, you know, advent of the internet and podcasts and things like that, that maybe we would um, have some more in-depth conversations with these candidates or something like that, you know, to give them more than 30 seconds to explain their ideas or maybe more than 30 seconds to expose themselves because all of these candidates, um, Elizabeth Warren in particular, had just a shameful performance and and they pressed her on this Medicare for all, how she's going to pay for it. You know, if she's going to raise taxes on the middle class and they keep asking her this question over and over again, and she just keeps dodging it. And you can get away with that if you only have 30 seconds to maybe a minute to respond. And then they have to move on. They have to get somebody else in there. They have to ask another question because they have a bunch of questions to get to and they have several topics that they want to talk to talk about. And so she can just say, oh, I've been very clear on this. Like I said, costs will go up, especially for the uh, the rich and the billionaires. But the costs for middle class people, those will go down. So are you going to raise taxes on the on middle class uh, families? Elizabeth Warren, costs will go up for the rich and for the middle class, costs will go down. Well, what costs? What are you talking about? Uh, costs, that, that, that's awfully vague. You have aggregate costs. Okay, because my healthcare costs right now are, are I've, I've been very fortunate with my health. I mean, I try to take good care of myself. I, I try to eat right. I exercise. I have health insurance. I've been paying I've been paying for health insurance since I was 23 years old. I've I've practically I've never put in a claim. I I've been lucky enough that to not have anything seriously wrong with me. But that's usually the case for the vast majority of younger people, 23-year-olds, people in their 20s, these young guy young guys especially, they practically never go to the doctor. All right? And if they choose not to have health insurance, well they're they're taking a calculated risk, right? That they're they don't think they're going to have a, a major healthcare event. And so by not paying for insurance that they're not going to need through their 20s, they can save up more and more money and have that at their disposal later on in life for when maybe they will have higher healthcare costs. Right. But if so, if your healthcare costs right now are zero, okay, and you're, you're kind of gambling that you're not going to have have to pay for any any healthcare related costs for the year and Elizabeth Warren is proposing or she won't come clean on this but let's say Bernie Sanders is proposing that your taxes are going to go up regardless of whether or not you use healthcare services well then you you've got a guaranteed healthcare bill every year whereas the vast majority of people in their 20s wouldn't have that it's not a great deal for them is it it's not a great deal to have a guaranteed health care bill every year if your taxes are going up to fund Medicare for all. And, and speaking about Medicare for all, it, it's just so obvious. It's so obvious if you think about it for two seconds that taxes are going to have to go up on everybody. Now, Bernie Sanders has admitted this. Bernie Sanders has admitted, at least you know, to his credit, that Yes, your taxes will go up, but your health care costs will be zero 
You know, you won't have any copay, you won't have any expenses, so you won't have to pay for any health insurance, but your taxes will go up. And so, you know, your taxes, uh, they claim that your taxes won't go up as much as your health insurance and health care expenses do now. And, okay, I guess we can we can talk about that and whether or not that's uh, a believable statement. But Elizabeth Warren is trying to claim that, or Elizabeth Warren just dodges that question completely um, and starts talking about costs, costs. I, I don't know what she means by that. And she never elaborates on it. And you can just tell that she's so full of shit. Because she won't, like, by the third time you ask somebody a direct yes or no question and you don't get a yes or no answer, you, you, your, your spidey sense should be tingling. You know, your, your bullshit meter should be uh, ringing off the charts. Um, but it's just so obvious if you just think about it for two seconds. Like, we have Medicare right now, right? We all have to pay into it. They, they take money out of our paycheck every month for Medicare. Now, we cannot draw on those Medicare benefits until, what, we turn 65, I think it is, or whatever it is, 63, 65. It doesn't really matter. So from you know the age of 15, when you start working, um, most of us, well, I don't know about these days, but back in my day, you, know, you started working at 15. You started paying into Medicare. You pay into it for fucking 40 years, 40, 50 years, okay? And then... At the end of that, you can start drawing some Medicare benefits. And even now, one of the most indebted programs, one of the most bankrupt programs that the government has is Medicare. It's completely bankrupt. So just from people paying into it for 50 years and then drawing benefits after 65, we've bankrupted this program. And you think that you can add everybody in the country to it? From age one, or from, from day one, I guess, from the second you're born until the second you die, you can be in Medicare, in, enrolled in Medicare for all, and, and somehow it's not going to be bankrupt, and somehow the rich are just going to pay for all of it. And nobody else's taxes are going to have to go up. When we already have to pay taxes into Medicare now, and we can't draw on until we're 65. Like, how is that going to work? How does that work? The rich just can't pick up that tab. It's, it's utterly ridiculous that this is even a question and that nobody ever brings this up. Just think about it for two seconds. It's obvious. Of course your taxes are going to go up. Everyone's taxes are going to have to go up. And if you go back and you listen to my um, episodes on taxation, I did a brief history on, on taxes, and it's, I promise it's not as boring as it sounds. But the original income tax, I'll go through it really quickly, was only supposed to be 1% on the 1%. And, okay, so, like, if, if you were making the equivalent of, like, $5 million, you would have to pay 1% of your income on that, all right? And it went up to, to 7%, I think, was the most that they ever taxed anybody, all right? 7% on, like, Rockefeller, okay? The vast majority of people... You know, it was billed as a tax cut because before then, taxes were all, we, before the income tax. The the way that the government funded itself was through tariffs. Okay, and everybody had to pay tariffs. Poor people, uh, middle class people, and rich people all had to pay tariffs. But the way it was billed was, hey, let's have this income tax just on the one percent. You know, the tippy top. 
we'll tax them, and then we can eliminate these tariffs, and middle-class people, poor people, they'll all get a tax cut, okay? And within 15 years of that, I mean, as soon as World War I hit, really, so within like five years of that, they increased taxes on just about everybody. But by world by by the by nineteen twenty eight, nineteen thirty, the the poorest people were were paying so much more in taxes that were ever envisioned under the initial income tax thing. So this is what government does, okay? They it's the camel's nose under the tent. The second you give them the authorization to tax you, right? They'll all, it always starts uh, at the 1%. It always starts at the tippy top. And then that's never enough for them. And so they always have to either lower the threshold for uh, qualifying for the tax, you know? So if it's on incomes of $5 million, then it goes down to incomes of $3 million, and then $1 million, and then 500000 And it just keeps going down and going down and going down until it hits everybody. Or they raise the rates, and they start at 1%, they go to 10%, then 20%, then 40%, then 90%, or they do both, which is eventually they're going to get to both, where they lower the thresholds and they increase the rates because it's never enough for them. It's never going to be enough. So the idea that we even have to ask Elizabeth Warren, I mean, I know we're try- they're trying to get her on the record and just say it, that she's going to raise taxes. But the idea that we even have to pretend that the, the middle class taxes aren't going to go up and that people believe, people believe that this is going to, they're going to be better off under this system is just, oh, it, it's so depressing to me. Anyway, um, <laughs> went off on a little bit of a tangent there. But my point is that these debates are absolutely ridiculous. The format is just, is so absurd. That that this is how we this is how we decide who's going to be the commander in chief of the largest government the world has ever seen, through through a bunch of these staged debates where you know you, you don't get any real substance from anybody. You get a bunch of canned answers, prepared statements. Nobody's ever really challenged, especially in the Democratic debate. They all seem to agree on just about everything. It's the government should do it. But they all seem to agree that the government should be in charge of healthcare. The government should be in charge of education. There, there's really no debate. They just all they could basically all go down the line and be like, "Yeah, I agree with everything that Joe Biden just said," except that I would take it even farther. But you know, there, the uh, the entire night of debates, there are these constant themes that the the billionaires are going to pay for everything. You know, all of these programs, all of these ideas that the that the Democrats are coming up with, the billionaires are going to pay for it. And I mean, it, it really is <laughs> unbelievable to think, uh, you know, just to see how many contradictions there are. Because on the one hand, you know, Bernie Sanders, he'll come right out and say billionaires shouldn't exist, shouldn't have billionaires. All right. And then on the other hand, their entire plan. Their entire um, way of life, their entire way of organizing society is completely dependent on having billionaires. Like, what's going to happen to Bernie Sanders' socialist utopia if you get rid of all the billionaires? If you tax all the billionaires into millionaire status? Well, then what? <laughs> then who funds, your, who funds all of these programs? Then it's the millionaires? Then it's like, oh, well, we shouldn't have millionaires. Millionaires shouldn't exist. So then you tax all of them. And into middle class status. 
Okay. It just keeps going down and down and down until nobody has anything, until the government has squandered everyone's wealth. They talk about breaking up monopolies. Elizabeth Warren is real big. She's got a plan to break up uh, the big banks and the big tech firms, and we need to break up all these monopolies. Well, guess what? I actually agree. We should break up monopolies. And the only true monopoly, the biggest monopoly, the most evil, destructive monopoly is the U.S. federal government. That is a monopoly. It is a monopoly on the use of force. It should absolutely be broken up. But they don't seem to understand this. They're in favor of that monopoly, but no other monopoly, right? Well, why not? Why are monopolies bad? <laughs> if monopolies are bad, why do we only have one federal government that, that has a monopoly over everything? Shouldn't we break that up? Shouldn't we get rid of that? I mean, for the, for the same reason that we should get rid of any other monopoly? Anyway, what I really want to focus on today is the billionaire thing. And I know that was a... A 25-minute detour <laughs> and route to our main topic of, of today's podcast. But one of the biggest misconceptions, I think, today, and, and this is not just on the left. You, you see it on the populist right as well. But um, the, the Bernie Sanders of the world, the Elizabeth Warrens, they love to attack billionaires. Okay, Billionaires shouldn't exist, according to Bernie Sanders. And I think there is a huge misconception today in society about, about uh, just money in general, how the economy works, why billionaires are actually important to society, uh, why they are not a problem, why income inequality isn't a problem, and, and why, you know, why I think billionaires should exist. I, I want billionaires. I, I, I love billionaires. Everything I've got today that I value like your smartphone, your your computer, the, the the way I'm recording this podcast right now, I can thank a billionaire for that. And let's think about the dynamic here because I, I really think this is important. You know, you'll hear Bernie Sanders talk about billionaires like they stole something from you, like they took stuff from you and me, and that's how they've made all their money. Now, that may be somewhat true in the crony capitalistic world that we live in where they have these um, incestuous relationships with the government and they're getting rich through some government program or through some government contract. I'm talking about in a truly free market what it means to be a billionaire and the relationship that, that they have with the economy. Right. And, you know, they want to they want to demonize profits. You know, uh, Bernie Sanders rails against all the profits that the healthcare industry makes. And it's just this this terrible way of looking at the world where it, it's just completely backwards that it's this fixed pie. It's a fixed pie fallacy of economics where there is only a certain number of goods and services in the world. And, you know, somebody having a, a billion dollars means that they've taken something from you, that you have to have less because they have more. And this is how this is how socialism views the world. This is how socialists view the world. And it, and it implies socialism relies on a fixed pie view of economics, on a fixed pie world. And I understand why they view it that way, because under socialism, they basically want to stop all of the productive behavior, all of the things that create wealth. They want to stop those in their tracks and start redistributing it like it is a fixed pie. So that would be a fixed pie. If you stop, the, if you stop people from making billions and you stop the way wealth is truly created, 
and then you just start divvying up what already exists among people, then you're then you have your fixed pie. And for a really long time, for thousands of years, that's how the world worked. That's how the world worked before free market capitalism was discovered. It was all through pillage and conquest. Your fortune could only be accumulated through the taking of other people's property. You had to go invade the neighboring town, steal all the stuff that they had, and that's how you accumulated wealth. The beautiful thing about capitalism, what, no, what so many people fail to understand, is that it's a system that makes possible the creation of wealth through peaceful, voluntary interaction. We don't have to pillage. We don't have to plunder. We can all create wealth uh, almost out of nothing. Where there was nothing but, but raw materials and resources, we can take those things and use our ingenuity, use our brains to create something of value that was not there to begin with. Socialism fails to understand this economic principle. And in that sense, they're stuck in the Stone Ages. They're, they're, that philosophy is stuck in the Stone Ages, in the, in the medieval times, where they thought that the only way that you can get rich is at somebody else's expense, is, is by taking from somebody else. But if you have a, a, a free market system, and, and this is just, just look around, uh, all the things we have today that didn't exist 100 years ago, 500 years ago, obviously it's not a fixed pie. Obviously we can take things and create tremendous amounts of wealth from them. So the idea that uh, because somebody is a billionaire, that means that there's less stuff out there for you is just exactly how you shouldn't look at the world. Because let's think about what's actually happening when a billionaire makes his billions, right? And this is why they're not a problem, okay? Because I think a lot of times people get hung up on on the dollars. Okay, we're getting we're getting we're focusing on the money that's changing hands and not the the whole picture, which is money and goods and services and and growth in the economy. If you have a billionaire, right? You know, you know Steve Jobs uh, creates the iPhone, and he, you know, on on an, on a case by case basis, right? If you buy an iPhone, you pay, I don't know what they are now, $1,200 or some insane amount of money that I won't pay for a phone. But if you do, if you buy your iPhone from Apple for $1,200, what you are saying is that you value the iPhone and all of its functions more than you value the $1,200. Okay? You with me so far? And... From Steve Jobs' perspective, if he were still around today, he values the $1,200 more than the iPhone. Okay, that's a voluntary exchange. That's great. It's a win-win for everybody. Okay? Now, if we, if we extrapolate that to the rest of society and look at it on a large scale, everything that everybody buys, everything that you've acquired, every item that you've acquired, you implicitly value that more than the paper dollars that you're passing out to, to get those things, right? So if you go to a coffee shop, you buy a cup of coffee, you value the cup of coffee more than you value the dollars. And so society in general values that coffee more than it values the dollars. Now, Starbucks obviously values the dollars more than the cup of coffee because they have all the coffee and they need the dollars. The society in general, if you look at all the goods and services that are being provided... 
and all of the dollars that are, are, that are being parted with to obtain those goods and services, then what we have here, it, it, what society is saying is that all of those goods and services that were bought are more valuable than the dollars that were used to pay for them. So by definition, what Steve Jobs is doing is providing more, th- more value to society than he's asking for in return. Right? If on one transaction that person values the phone more than they value the dollars, then if you aggregate that out, then everybody who buys a phone from Steve Jobs values that phone more than they value the dollars. So all of society is showing that they value the phone or the good and service that they're buying more than they value the dollars, okay? So what Steve Jobs has done has provided more value than he's asking for in return, and he's accumulated this pile of dollars. It's it's now in the billions. He's accumulated billions of dollars, which are essentially IOUs from society for goods and services that he has provided to society that he he hasn't cashed in on yet. He's accumulated a bunch of uh, goods and services to buy from society, but he hasn't actually bought all of them yet. So he's really given more to society than he's taken from society, which is the exact opposite of what you hear coming out of these politicians. You know, they always talk about how these billionaires need to give back to society, like they took something from society. That's, That's a bunch of nonsense. They don't need to give back anything. They didn't take anything. They didn't take anything to begin with. They provided value. So they don't need to give anything back. Those dollars are a measure of what society actually has to give back to the billionaires because it's a bunch of goods and services that they've essentially paid for through the value that they've created in society, and they haven't cashed in on it yet. They've provided society with tremendous amounts of wealth, tremendous amounts of goods and services. And in return, they've asked for these things, these pieces of paper, that we don't really value as much as the things that they were providing for us. Otherwise, we wouldn't have bought them in the first place. That's all the dollars are. They're a measure of what is owed to the billionaire from society. It's a measure of how much good they've done for society, how much value they've created. He's got a pile of IOUs, basically, uh, for, for future consumption in society. And then what does he do? What do these billionaires do with uh, all of this, uh, all of these IOUs that they've accumulated? Well, they can't spend them all. Okay, so what do they do? They save it and they invest it. Okay, and what do we know grows the economy? Contrary to popular belief, it's not consumption; it's savings and investment. In order to grow the economic pie, that pie that Bernie Sanders thinks is fixed. Well, you can make it bigger. You can expand that pie through savings and investment. And that's what the billionaires do with all of the IOUs that they've accumulated from society for the goods and services they haven't bought yet. They save it. They invest it in in new companies, in startup companies. They loan it out. The the banks loan out. The the money that the billionaires save in banks gets loaned out to people who want to start their own businesses who, who are going to try to grow that economic pie through entrepreneurship. I mean, this is how an economy grows. You, you create value where there was no value through your desire to earn a profit 
You know, they want to demonize profits. Like everything you have right now, every item that you see in front of you, you have everything that you've ever purchased, you were able to buy because somebody was trying to make a profit. Okay? Uh, profits are not evil. And just because someone profits doesn't mean it's at your expense. A- as we just went over, when there's a voluntary exchange, they're not profiting at your expense. You're, you're benefiting more than they are. You value the, the phone more than you value the dollars. How is that at your expense? And, you know, Elizabeth Warren's out here talking about, oh, how I spent my entire life studying how people have gone broke in society. Uh, well, Jesus Christ, Pocahontas, why don't you try studying how people create wealth? You actually need to study to figure out why people are poor? Uh, how hard is that to figure out? That's what you're working on? Try figuring out what makes people wealthy and then build off of that. Because we all come into this world naked and afraid. If you want to go back and listen to that episode. Uh, we all come into this world with nothing. So how did we get to this point where we walk around with a supercomputer in our pockets? Uh, this, this cell phone thing that's got the entire, an entire world's worth of knowledge at your fingertips. How did we get from being naked cavemen to that? Well, why don't you work on studying that, and maybe you'll figure out that a billionaire is not a bad thing. They're great for society. Thank God for billionaires. We should all want more billionaires and not less billionaires. A billionaire doesn't mean that you can't become a billionaire or that they're taking something from you. It means that they're providing a billion dollars worth of goods and services to society. They're making us all better off as a result. We're better off because we get the things that we value more than the dollars that we give them. The billionaires are better off because they get the dollars that they value more than the goods and services they're providing. The economy overall is better off because it gets to take those billions of dollars that aren't being spent consuming things, that aren't being spent eating up resources, and they get to invest in future capital, future plant and equipment, future growth in the economy, so that the economic pie will be even bigger and and more and more people will have more wealth and more prosperity than ever before. That's how we've gotten here. That's how we've pulled billions of people out of abject poverty. A couple of hundred years ago, we were living on a dollar a day. A dollar a day. That was poverty. That was true poverty. And now look at us today. Look at us today. Even the the poorest people in America are in the 1% of the world. Okay? If you're making $20,000, $30,000 a year in America, you're in the 1% of the globe. You're in the 1% of the world. You're in the 1% of the 1% of human beings that have ever existed, okay? Your life is so much better than any other person that lived before you. It's really unbelievable that we sit here and we harp about how these billionaires have too many dollars. When we're overlooking the fact that we have, everyone's got a cell phone, cars, a house with running water, electricity, heat, air conditioning. We all have these things. The vast majority of people have these things. We're so much closer in equality than we were before capitalism. It's unbelievable. You know, before capitalism, it was only the elites that had things. You know, the the crown, 
the kings, the queens. Not only did they not have half the things that we have today, but the the difference between a king and a, a peasant back then was a lot wider than the the gap between a billionaire and somebody working for the minimum wage today. Now, I know that may seem crazy, but really think about it. Really think about it. Like a, a, a poor person today drives a, a, a beat-up beat Hyundai with, with uh, uh, 80,000 miles on it, right? It still has air conditioning. It, it probably has power windows. Maybe, it, maybe you actually have to roll them down yourselves. Uh, a rich person drives around in a Bentley. They, they both still get from A to B. They're both living in houses. Now, the billionaire's house is much nicer. It's probably got nicer finishings. It's a lot bigger. They have more rooms. They have more bathrooms. But the poor person still has a bathroom with running water. They still have heat. They still have electricity. Whereas back then, back then, you know, the, 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 the king would travel on uh, the, the coach at four. You know, a little buggy with, with four horses pulling it. And the poor people would have to walk barefoot without shoes, <laughs> okay? Uh, or uh, they, they'd be living in some hut made out of mud with, with no indoor plumbing, no nothing, and the, and the king's living in a palace. That inequality, that was the result of, of pillaging and plundering, of socialism, is, is far greater than the inequality that anybody is experiencing now. And the other thing you have to keep in mind when they talk about income inequality is, is that it, it's never the same people that are in these income groups that they always like to break down. The 1%, the 99%, you know, the, the people who are in the 1% today may not be the same people that are in the 1% tomorrow. And the people that are in the middle class today maybe find themselves in the 1% later on down the road. So, so just taking a static picture and, and acting like it's the same people in these groups year after year, it's not always the case. It's very disingenuous. And the other thing is, again, they only focus on the, on the exchange of dollars. Right? They, they look at Steve Jobs selling a, you a cell phone, and, and they, it's like they're just looking at your two bank accounts. Like his bank account goes up by $1,200, yours goes down by $1,200. There's income inequality there. Well, no, because you got the phone. They're forgetting about the thing that you valued more than the dollars that you now have. Uh, they never count that in the income inequality. So it's just a ridiculous way of judging society. The most important thing, the, the thing that we always want to maintain, is ease of movement between income brackets. You want to be able to move from being poor to being middle class, from being middle class to being wealthy. As long as that income mobility is possible, as long as we're making that, we're facilitating that as, as best we can, then income inequality isn't an issue. Because like I said, the billionaires aren't stealing from you. A rich person accumulating wealth is not at your expense, okay? The only way you can accumulate wealth in a free market system is by providing goods and services to other people. All right, And as long as we can have people moving up that ladder, as long as we don't have artificial barriers to entry created by entities like a government, we can all continue to get richer and richer at no one else's expense, but by finding ways to provide value to other people to help pull them out of poverty. And round and round we go.
And, and I think I'm going to leave it there for today. Guys, if you like the show today and you want to help me get into the 1%, I, I need you to do a couple of things for me. Since I'm providing so much value for you, I'm going to ask for a few things in return. If you can do a few things for me, like share the show, download and subscribe, and give me a five-star rating on iTunes, I, I will keep coming back week after week to provide you with hopefully what you find some entertaining and mentally stimulating podcast material. So do me a favor and share this show with two of your friends who think that billionaires are evil. <laughs> All right. And follow me on Twitter at Pedal Fiction. And if you really want to give back to society, if you really want to give back to the show, you can donate monetarily by going to our website, peddlingfictionpodcast.com. There's any number of ways for you to donate. And all of that money that gets donated to the show goes right back into the podcast to create more content and try to increase the number of people that get to hear our message. And if you can do all that, I will be back later this week with a brand new episode. Until then, just remember to keep on peddling that so-called fiction. Peace. Peace.